right. Well, welcome. Uh, if this is your first time here, or if this is your uh, thousandth, thousandth time here, um, we, we've been in Advent for a couple of weeks now. And if you're unfamiliar with that, is it's just the usually traditionally the four weeks leading up to Christmas. Advent means coming, and so we await, um, in a sense, the, the coming birth of Christ. We look forward to celebrating that on Christmas. Um, and so this week we are beginning, so the last two weeks of Advent, we've continued our series in Matthew. This week, starting this week, we are going to be doing a, a short three-week series specifically on Advent. Um, and what we're going to be looking at this Advent season, season is the biblical concept of waiting, of waiting. And, and why? Well, because Christmas, the, the traditionally, the Christmas season, is a season marked by waiting. A season of, of looking forward to something, specifically the birth of Christ. But, but even if you just kind of pull back from the Bible for a second and just think of Christmas in general and in the culture at large, Christmas is still a season of waiting. I mean, think of when you were a kid. This is probably the, the, the most easiest, clearest way to think about this. Think back to when you were a kid. One of the reasons you loved the Christmas season is because you were so excited for Christmas Day, right? Probably for all the wrong reasons. Um, some of the right reasons. But the food, the presents, right? Just that magical morning. And you looked forward to that morning with anticipation, Maybe some other traditions you and your family had. You'd stare at the presents sitting there under the tree, all wrapped up, maybe shake one a little bit, right? Did anyone ever open one before they were supposed to? Sinners, sinners. Repent. We'll pray for you. Um, I was just curious. That has nothing to do with the sermon. But now I know. Uh, now, obviously, that kind of that kind of waiting, right, is kind of just from a pure, purely earthly, humanly perspective. It's it's good fun. It's it's a good thing. But but we know that the waiting now, as we're older, and even when we're younger, that Christmas is not about all that stuff. It's about the birth of Messiah, Jesus. But it's still about waiting. It's still about looking forward to something. That, that's the whole idea of Advent, is looking forward to the coming of Messiah. It's, it's a longing for Messiah to come and deliver his people. God's people had been looking forward to the birth of Messiah for, for literally all of biblical history until he came. Since the fall of Adam and Eve, people, God's people, and creation itself, had been groaning under the curse of sin. But God had promised, again, at the very beginning, that He would one day send a Deliverer, a Messiah, a Savior, a Serpent Crusher. And the, the entire Old Testament is, is pointing to this. For thousands of years, people are waiting, looking for Messiah to come. And so, it, we try to enter into that, that spirit of waiting in a sense, during Advent. And this is what it's about. Why? So that we can properly celebrate the birth and coming 
of Messiah. So that we can properly remember, worship, and adore God for the blessing that Jesus Christ is. For the blessing that God's faithfulness is to his people. This is why we sing songs that, like, O come, O come, Emmanuel. Now, in some sense, it's kind of silly because Emmanuel has come. So it's kind of strange to sing a song that we're longing for his coming, unless this is what we're trying to do. We're trying to appreciate and understand the gravity and the greatness of his coming. The same thing for a song like, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. These theologically rich songs that remind us of who Jesus was promised to be, and therefore who he is. But, but we aren't waiting for the, the birth of Messiah anymore. That has happened in the past. Praise God. But, but we are still waiting for Jesus, aren't we? We are waiting for his return. So, so the Old Testament saints awaited the arrival of the king, and we await the return of the king. And we are waiting for what our passage this morning calls the blessed hope, the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so the question naturally arises from that. And this is the question that's kind of driving the, the next three weeks that we'll look at from various passages. Is, is how do we wait? What does that waiting look like? What do we do in the meantime? And so we're going to be answering that question over the next three weeks. So this morning, we're going to be looking at the letter to Titus. So turn in your Bibles to Titus chapter 2. We're going to be starting in verse 11 this morning. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. Titus 2, 11. Let's read this together. We'll be going through verse 14 this morning. Hear now the, the word of God. Paul writes this. I'm going to wait till I hear no more pages turning. That, that wasn't a negative comment, by the way. I just want you to be able to see it as well. So it's Titus chapter 2, verse 11. Here's what it says. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Amen. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we ask this morning that you would give us the gift of engaging and contemplating the mysteries of your heavenly wisdom that are revealed in your word. Lord, increase our devotion to you this morning. Father, we, we pray that you would open up your holy word to us this morning by the power of and illumination of your Holy Spirit. Father, we pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see your truth this morning. 
And that, Father, you would work within us the obedience that you desire. For your glory and our edification. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, before we get into the, the words of this text this morning, we need a little bit of background on what is going on here in this, this letter. This is a letter that Paul wrote to Titus. And we need to kind of understand some of the context to, to, to fully see what's going on here. So Titus, who is Titus? Titus is one of Paul's closest um, co-laborers in the gospel, one of Paul's closest partners. He, he pops up in several of the letters in the New Testament. Um, he traveled with Paul on some of his missionary journeys. He was with Paul in Corinth at various times, ministering alongside him. And this is kind of a generalization, but if you picture Paul as kind of like the pioneer missionary, he, he wanted to be, what he says at the end of Romans, his mission is to go where the gospel has never been before and to kind of plant that flag for Jesus Christ. And as soon as that area has, has a church that's kind of growing, he takes off and goes to the next place. Paul, Paul is a missionary, a church planner at heart. Titus is kind of the guy that comes in after that or stays behind and continues the work that Paul started. And that's what we see going on here. Paul had gone to the island of Crete, an island in the Mediterranean. And he had planted churches there in various towns and cities. And now he's sent Titus to Crete to continue that work as Paul's moving on. He says this in in verse 5 of chapter 1. He says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders Pastors in every town as I directed you. So, so Titus is on the island of Crete to make sure the churches have pastor, elders, leaders, and, and to, in a sense, finish establishing the churches that Paul had established through the power of the Holy Spirit. He, Titus is to make sure these churches are healthy and functioning correctly. Why is this so important? Well, we find out in this letter, because there are, like all these churches in the New Testament, there are false teachers in Crete trying to pervert and confuse the believers in these churches. These false teachers are are vying for influence in the churches. And according to Paul, they are influencing some believers. This is how Satan always works. Satan hates the church and he's always seeking to get in there somehow to divide the church, to deceive the believers in the church. This is one of the main reasons the churches of Crete, Paul says, and and all churches need qualified leaders, pastor, elders. Paul, Paul tells us one of the main qualifications here in Titus for these pastor elders. So he tells Titus, look, you've got to appoint these leaders And one of the main qualifications in verse 9 that he gives of these leaders is this. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So these churches need leaders to teach them good doctrine and to rebuke those who are teaching false doctrine can see the metaphor of a shepherd there. To teach the sheep and to protect the sheep from the wolves. This is what pastors must do. This is how the churches of Crete will be protected from the deception and division that Satan is trying to sow. But, but that kind of raises the question, well, what exactly are these 
these false teachers teaching? Well, Paul doesn't give us specifics. He wouldn't need to because Titus would know what they're teaching. But we see in verse 14 of chapter 1 that it has something to do with Jewish myths. But also, the main thing, and this is what you see, if you, if you do a study in the New Testament of what, the, just all the, the letters and, and books of the New Testament, what false teachers generally are accused of, is the same thing we see here in Titus. They, they teach one thing and they live another way. So they teach one thing and then they try to teach everyone else that obedience to God's laws is not really important. See this specifically in Jude, but here... In Titus, that's what we see. They are claiming that a person can know God even if they have no desire or, or, or seek to obey God at all. It says this in verse 16 of the false teachers. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Paul says they're upsetting the church. Paul calls Titus to be different. Paul calls Titus to teach sound doctrine, which is obedient living. And that is what we're going to see this morning. And, and, and to do that, Paul is going to remind Titus of, of God's great plan of redemption. Past, present, and future aspects of what God has done, is doing, and will do. And so that's, that's kind of what's going on in our passage. And we'll see that why this, this passage this morning is kind of an answer to the question of why should Christians be obedient to God's commands? So the first thing we're going to see this is this, that the past aspect, the appearance of grace, the appearance of grace. Look, look at verse 11 of chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. Now, the first thing you'll notice is that word for, meaning this is an explanation of the why of the previous passage. And if we'll read through this passage later, but the beginning of chapter two is all instructions for how, to, how the believers in the church should live. And so Paul then answers his own question. Well, why should they live this way? The answer is for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. So this is the past aspect. Has appeared. It's something that happened in the past. When, when did the grace of God appear in history? When Jesus Christ was born. Jesus Christ is the manifestation of the grace of God. He himself is the revelation, the, the personification of God's grace. Jesus is God's grace in human flesh. So, so if you want to know what God's grace looks like, look at Jesus Christ. And so again, what, 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 is, what does this tell us? God's grace, we, you know, we use that word a lot, just grace, grace, grace. It's not an abstract philosophical concept or a theological concept. It can be summed up in, in the, life, the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The, the grace of God is his his divine, sovereign initiative and plan to save sinners. It's his action on behalf of sinners to save them. The, the, the entire message of Scripture, God's, God's great plan of redemption in Jesus Christ, the very purpose of all of it is to display his glorious grace to the entire universe. 
And Jesus Christ is the embodiment of all of this. God in human flesh, Jesus is the ultimate and full picture of God's grace. So much so that that Paul can essentially say here, when Jesus was born into the world, the very grace of God appeared to us. The, the, The revelation of God's grace in the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the gospel. The gospel, the good news of Jesus is, Paul calls it in Acts 20, 24, the gospel of the grace of God. It is the good news of God's grace towards sinners like you and I. It is by this grace, by God's grace, that we are justified or or declared righteous before Him. Paul says this in Romans 3.24. He says, and we are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This means that, that anything and everything that we have from God is a gift. We've done nothing to earn it. In fact, we've done a lot to, what's the opposite of earn it? To, to reject it. <laughs> but, but, but again, God's grace is not a thing. It's, it's not a concept. It's an action. God's grace is active. It, it, God's grace accomplishes His purposes. Look at, look at the next line in verse 11 to see what did God's grace accomplish? What did the appearing of God's grace accomplish? For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. The, the grace of God, Jesus Christ, accomplished salvation for all people. He brought salvation. And the, the natural question that, that, that arises after a statement like that is, Because if you just kind of read that and pull it out of its context, it kind of sounds like, well, wait a minute. Does Does that mean that everyone in the entire world is saved? I mean, it says all people. Doesn't all people mean all people? Well, not necessarily. The message of the New Testament is clear. Those who are saved, those who have salvation in Christ, are those who believe in Him by faith. Those who place their faith in Christ. The, the, the nuance here in the context is, is all kinds of people. In other words, there is no group of people to which salvation is unavailable. Jesus did not just come for the Jews, in other words. He came for all people. Jews, Gentiles, men, women, slave, free, white, black, whatever type of person you are, salvation is available to you in Jesus Christ. Salvation is available to anyone, everyone, who will repent of their sin and place their faith in Jesus Christ. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. (laughs) That's the story of Christmas. That, That is the event that every faithful person in the previous thousands of years since the creation of the world was looking forward to. They knew God was gracious. But they hadn't seen the grace of God. And so this this is the the past aspect of God's plan. It has happened. Praise God. The, the, The fact that the grace of God has appeared in history is the reason that we are all here today. We are here today because the grace of God 
has appeared, bringing salvation for people like you and me. But again, this is the action. So, so the God's grace doesn't just appear. It's not like it just appeared in the sky. It does stuff. So, so what is it doing to us? Well, that's the second thing we see in this text. God's grace trains us. We see the training of God's grace. Look at verse 12. So God's grace has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. Training, and that's, that's talking about God's grace. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. You see the connection to grace here in this text? The, the grace of God has appeared. What has it done? It's brought, bringing salvation and training. Present tense. Training is present tense. It's happening now. Look, look at the end of the verse. In this present age. So again, what, whatever is going on in this verse is what is happening now. Present. But I, do you ever think of God's grace this way? I don't know if I think of it this way until I really started to meditate on this text that, that God's grace trains us. I mean, I think we often associate God's grace with, with salvation. Do you ever think of it as something that, that trains us, that teaches us, that instructs us now? By grace you have been saved. We, we, we get that, or I, I hope we do. I think we do. But do you understand that God's grace is training you? teaching you. Jesus did not just come to save us past tense. He came to train us present tense. To train us. To teach us. Well, to do what? What is he training us for? Well, well this verse answers it. And there's, there's kind of two aspects. There's, he trains us to, to renounce thir- certain things and to pursue other things. So there's kind of a negative and positive aspect. So, so let, let's look at the negative first. God's grace is training us to renounce or to deny ungodliness and worldly passions. Christians are to renounce, again, that's just a reject, deny ungodliness and worldly passions. That's one of the things here that God's grace is training us to do. And there's a sense in which that's a past tense thing in your life if you're a believer. When you placed your faith in Christ, you had to first repent of your sins. Turn from your sin and place your faith in Christ. So if you are a believer in Christ, again, in a sense, you have renounced ungodliness. You have renounced and repented of your sins. Turn to Christ in faith. But, But there's also a sense. It doesn't stop there, does it? Because... If when you turned from your sin and placed your faith in Christ, your sin just disappeared and you were perfect, then it would stop there. Has that happened to anybody? Because it hasn't to me. That's why it's present tense. There's a sense in which every day, every minute, we must continually seek to reject, to renounce ungodliness and the worldly things that tempt us. Yeah. Martin Luther, the, the famous reformer, his, his first, the very first of his 95 theses says this, and this is so good. He said, when the Lord and Master, Je- sorry, he said, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. And that is so true. That, that, that's 
exactly right. Our entire life every day is one of continual repentance. When Sarah, my wife, and I first met and started dating, we kind of came from two different places. We didn't have a lot of mutual friends. Um, We didn't go to the same church. But but she had some some good brothers in the Lord that, that she was close with at her church who all they heard was that she was dating some guy from Orange County. She was living in L.A., you know, and, and they didn't know what to think. And so they took it upon themselves, like, hey, we got to check this guy out. And I don't blame them. Um, it's actually a really cool thing. I, I mean, isn't that how brothers and sisters should protect each other in the faith? They, they heard that one of their friends was, was, you know, dating some guy. And they're like, we, we should go talk to him and make sure he's legit. Um, Really, really cool. So these guys that I don't know and have never met call me up, and they say they want to meet me for coffee. So we set it up, and again, they drove all the way down from L.A., and we sat and talked. So it was three of them and me, which you can just imagine. Um, I had a lot of fun with them. Uh, But it was kind of funny. One of the first things they asked me, and what they were trying to do was to make sure that I was a Christian, right? And so one of the first things they asked me was, have you ever repented of your sin? And I had to mess with them a little bit. So (laughs) I said no. And I just kind of let it hang there. And they're kind of like, okay, okay. and, but but I, I, I let it, you know, hang just for effect. But I followed up with, I repent of my sin every day. And they kind of sighed, nervously laughed. Now, now, I knew what they meant, right? I was just messing with them. But the way they asked it had made it sound like it was a one-time thing. Like, have you ever repented? Um, and, and I wanted to mess with them. But I also wanted to be clear that that's not just something that I've done once. It's something that I'm doing every day. Sarah always tells me not to joke with people that don't know me, but it's just so fun. Uh, Repentance, this idea of rejecting ungodliness is is not just a one-time walk-the-aisle kind of decision. It's a lifestyle. In fact, it is the lifestyle of a Christian. There's no other lifestyle available to a Christian. Our lives in this present age, in other words, here and now, as Paul calls it, our lives in which we must continually reject and renounce ungodliness and worldly passions because it's all around us. So, so what are these things? What is ungodliness? Well, it's literally the opposite of godliness. It is the, it is the opposite of all the good, th- good things that God commands. So whatever good thing you can imagine that God has commanded in Scripture, it's the opposite of that. There are so many lists of these in Scripture, but, but when we kind of take a quick survey, an ungodly person or ungodly things, someone who lives for their own pleasure, someone who is prideful, someone who is sexually immoral. Now again, it's not someone who just embodies all of these, but these are all ungodly characteristics, ungodly things. They are sin, sexual immorality, anger, gossip, greed, gluttony, things like this are sins that mark out the ungodly. They is a, they are a people or a person who rejects God's commands. Paul, Paul says, the grace of God teaches us, trains us to renounce, to reject these things. Now, notice that he, he doesn't say, uh, 
avoid these things. He says, reject them, renounce them, throw them away. So we have to renounce these things. Worldly passions is, is a very similar idea. Worldly passions or, or literally worldly lusts are the desires. Uh, think of it this way. A desire is that a person might have for all of the tangible stuff of this world. Sex, money, power, possessions, all that stuff. That is the worldly stuff that tempts us. We have to renounce these. We saw this even in our passage last week with the rich young ruler. Here was a man who came to Jesus. He said, what must I do to be saved? Jesus essentially told him, renounce your worldly passions. And he walked away sorrowful because he had a lot of them. He couldn't give them up. We must do this continually. The grace of God trains us to renounce these, to disown these things. So what things in your life fall into these categories? Take a second and think about it. What ungodliness has, has crept in? What, what worldly passions tempt you or have you given into? The response is, is prayer and repentance. God, God, be gracious to me. Train me to renounce these things. Teach me to reject these things in my life. That's, that's the beauty of the idea of the grace of God training us. Notice it doesn't just say, figure this out on your own, and then you'll be acceptable to me. God says, I will train you how to do this. And an even better prayer is the words of Psalm 139, 23 through 24. This is a bold prayer. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Think about that for a second. Asking God, the one who can see all things, search my heart. You know what's in your heart. I know what's in my heart. Try me or test me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous or sinful way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. What a prayer. See, only the Christian can pray this prayer because only the Christian understands God's grace. You, you can't pray that prayer if you don't understand God's grace. You're like, don't search me. Don't test me. Don't, don't go in my thoughts. That's the last place you want to be, God. I don't want you to see that. But if you understand God's grace, you know that he accepts you in Christ. You know that he's forgiven your sin. You can say, I'm an open book. Lead me in the way everlasting. Whatever sins I have in my life, expose them and lead me away from them. Because I trust you. You've already dealt with them. You can pray this prayer. This is how God's grace trains us. God's grace and salvation in Christ disarms the sin in our life so that we can offer it up to him. We don't have to be scared to come to God in our sin. We can bring our sin to God because we know, we know because of Jesus Christ that he is gracious to us, that he desires to train us in righteousness. The Christian life is is a grace-fueled, active life. It is a life of constant training motivated by the grace of God. This, this is the definition of the Christian life. This is what grace does to a person. So, so that's the negative aspect. God's grace trains us to, to reject those things, but there's a positive side too. Look at the rest of verse 12. 
Training us to, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So it's not just renouncing stuff. It's, it's turning to something. Grace trains us to renounce, but also trains us to pursue and to live self-controlled, upright, or righteous, and godly lives. These are the, the character qualities that God is training you in if you are a believer. These are the things that you should be pursuing by the grace of God. And, and I want to kind of camp on self-control for a second because this is something that, that you, you don't notice unless you kind of hone in on it. This, this word self-control comes up all over the New Testament. I don't know if we necessarily... When you think of a godly person, if one of the first, first things you think about is self-control. But it would have been to the New Testament writers, to Paul and Peter and all these guys. It's mentioned all over the place. Paul mentions it three times in chapter 2 alone. It, what is self-control? It's, it's kind of what you think it is. It's, it's the ability to resist one's own fleshly desires in all things, whether that's Food, money, speech, or sex, or whatever. It's a person who has mastery over themselves. Another way to put it in a New Testament way is kind of a sober-mindedness, a, a level-headedness, a person who's not just pulled and tugged every way by everything going on around them. They're in control of themselves, mentally, physically. In Paul's mind, self-control is such a key quality for the mature Christian to be pursuing and growing in that he mentions it three times in chapter two before he even gets to our text. And, and I want to look at this because this is really important. And, and, and chapter two, chapter two, one through nine or one through 10 really answers the question. Paul kind of tells Titus, here's what Christian obedience looks like. What should a Christian's life look like? Paul answers that question here. Look at verse one. So, in verse 16 of chapter 1, he's just, he's just uh, blasted the false teachers. And he turns to Titus. He says, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. In other words, notice this. Sound doc- when we think sound doctrine, we think theology, all this stuff. For Paul, for Titus, sound doctrine included that. It also included how you lived your life. There's no such thing as having sound doctrine if you're, if you're living in disobedience to God. So here's what he says. Teach what accords with sound doctrine. What accords with sound doctrine? What is sound doctrine? Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled. There's our word. Sound in faith. Another way to say this. Healthy in their faith, in love, and in steadfastness, endurance perseverance. That's, that's what a, an older man in the face should look like. Those are the things they should be pursuing. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled. There we go again. Pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands. That the word of God may not be reviled. So, so we can see, 
so far, all groups of these people are to be self-controlled. Likewise, here's the third category, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. So every category of people from the oldest to the youngest, Paul says, you know what you should teach them? Self-control. You should teach them to be self-controlled. In fact, when he gets to the young men, Paul must know young men. He says, urge them, exhort them to be self-controlled. And then if you skip all the way down to verse 10, this line that I love that applies to everything before it, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. Our lifestyles, I love this, adorn or think of like decorate our, our doctrine, what we believe about God. It's like a Christmas tree. Our, our lifestyle, the way that we live, our, our beliefs, what we say we believe about God is like the tree and the way we live is the decorations on the tree. It's what makes it beautiful to people. And so Paul says, be Self-control is a mark of a mature Christian. We should pursue this. It's not saying either be perfect or forget it. He's saying pursue this. One of of the best ways to understand this idea of self-control is is an image Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 9 of an athlete. Paul uses this, 1 Corinthians 9.25, he writes this. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? He's speaking of the Christian life here. So run... Now he's speaking to a church here, not just one person. So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. We, but we, an imperishable. In other words, you see what Paul's saying. An athlete training for a competition exercises self-control in all things. In other words, they're watching their, their life physically, mentally, emotionally to be prepared for this competition. They eat certain good foods. They, they don't eat, or you could even say renounce to kind of fit it into our idea here. They, they get rid of unhealthy foods. Why? Because, because they're training for something specific. Paul says, think of the Christian life like this. If an athlete who's just training for some competition can exercise self-control, how much more should we be self-controlled? Running the race for something imperishable, something eternal. So Paul says, by God's grace, train yourself this way. Be trained by God's grace. Turn from ungodly things. Pursue godliness. Turn from disobedience to God's word and pursue obedience to God's word. This is what we do while we are waiting for the return of Christ. The the life of the believer is is not passive. We don't just sit around waiting. It's not neutral. It's not stagnant. Those who have come to faith in Jesus Christ by God's grace are those who are being trained by God's grace towards godliness. You can't separate those two things. They are one. Grace has appeared. Grace is training us. That's the past and the present. But what about the future? We see that in verse 13, the appearance of glory. So look at what verse 13 says. We're waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we are being trained while we wait. What are we waiting for? 
our blessed hope, the return of Jesus Christ. This is our hope. And, and the word for waiting here is more than English can communicate by the word waiting. It's, it contains this idea of, of waiting eagerly, of looking forward to. So it's not waiting like you wait at the DMV to get called to the counter. It's, it's waiting like, I can't wait for Christmas to come, kind of waiting. It's a looking forward to. It's an excitement. It's an eagerness to that event. Why is the Christian looking forward with, with eagerness to the anticipation, with anticipation to the return of Christ? There's so many reasons. Number one, because we love him. And when he returns, he will usher in the new heavens and the new earth. And we will dwell with him forever. We look forward to his return because when he returns, all things will be made new. Sin, sorrow, death, and suffering will be done away with forever. We will be made new. So as we train, as we're being trained by God's grace and as we mess up and we repent and we get frustrated and all we want to do is please God with our lives, that's only for this present age, brothers and sisters. One day, that struggle will be over when Christ, our blessed hope, returns and we will dwell with him for all eternity glory of God will be revealed in all its fullness on that day. That's why we look forward to His coming. And so as we are looking forward, we are being trained in this present life until our blessed hope comes. But, but notice Paul's language here. Who is Jesus? He is our great God and Savior. Now, there, there are many people out there today who will say things like, the Bible never says that Jesus is God. Or, kind of the more scholarly way to say it, is that the earliest Christians didn't believe Jesus was God. That kind of was developed later. Um, you know, this is, the, the Da Vinci Code was kind of the popular level way of, of making the statement. You can remember that whole craze that went on with that. It was a fun book, but tons of errors about Christianity. They, I forget what the case, they said something like, oh, Constantine was the one that said Jesus was God at the Council of Nicaea in 325. Crazy historically, but it's a book of fiction. But people would read that and go, oh, I didn't know that. I guess the earliest Christians didn't believe Jesus was God. This verse is completely destroys that argument. Now, there are a lot of ways to demonstrate how wrong that is from scripture, but this verse specifically it's clear as day. Jesus Christ, our great God and Savior. It's, it's inescapable grammatically. Grace has appeared. Grace is training us. Glory will appear in the future. And so we are being trained in godliness as we eagerly await the return of Jesus. But, but what is the... the why behind all of this? Well, this is what verse 14 is about. The purpose of grace. The purpose of grace. Look at verse 14. So it says, Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then he describes Christ. Who gave himself for us 
to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works or or who are passionate for good works. So who is Jesus Christ? He he is the God-man who gave himself as a substitute on the cross and paid the price for our sins in our place. Why did he do this? Paul gives us two reasons in this verse. Two purposes for the mission of Christ. To redeem us from all lawlessness. See, before Christ died for us, we were enslaved to sin under the curse. We were wicked and ungodly. We had the penalty of death rightfully on us because of our sin. But Christ in his mercy came to save sinners like you and me. Our salvation, our faith, everything we have is a gift of God's grace in Jesus Christ. He he didn't come for us because he saw how good we were. It's the exact opposite. We were helpless. We were enslaved to sin. In rebellion against God. We were in lawlessness. Jesus bought us out of that lawlessness with his own blood. This is so important to understand. Salvation is, is a gift. We do not earn it. Jesus earned it. It's so easy when we start talking about obedience and, and good works, like we have been this morning, to kind of slip into that idea, okay, well, I have to earn my right standing with God then. I have to do this so that God will love me. But, but this whole passage just destroys that idea. If we were able to obey enough to save ourselves, Jesus would never have had to come. Jesus would not have had to redeem us from our lawlessness. Jesus wouldn't have had to purify us. (laughs) Jesus is the one doing all the action in these verses. The grace of God is training us. Christ is the one redeeming us. Christ is the one purifying us. We are recipients of grace, brothers and sisters, undeserving recipients. Jesus bought our freedom. He bought us out of slavery with his own blood. We are no longer slaves of sin and death, but we are slaves of Jesus Christ, our great God and Savior, our brother, our friend. How merciful our God is to us. He redeemed us. He bought us out of slavery. But he also purifies us, cleanses us. It says, Paul continues, and to purify or to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Jesus gave himself, gave his life, To purify us, to cleanse us for himself, a people, so that we would be a people for his own possession. Do you hear that? We who believe in Christ are his reward. We, us, sinners, 
are the reward that Jesus receives for his suffering. He, he gave himself to get us. He got the short end of the stick in that deal. He, he gave himself to get us, to get you and me and everyone who believe in him so that we would be his possession. Jesus endured the cross and the wrath of the Father so that he might receive us as his people. I don't even know how to wrap my mind around that. The only response to that is worship and adoration. Jesus, knowing the entire depth of our depravity, of our sin, think of that prayer we talked about in Psalm 139, knowing every wicked thought of our ungodliness, said, yeah, those are the people I want. Oh, they're, they're not purified? I'll purify them. Oh, they're in slavery? I'll buy them with my own blood. He had every right to condemn us, but instead he came for us. He, he lived and died for us and he will return for us so that in eternity we can forever dwell with him in the new heavens and the new earth. This is the grace and mercy of our God. And what is the result? Verse 14, that we might be a people zealous for good works. You see, when you understand the grace and the mercy of God, you will be a people zealous for good works. This is, this is one of the evidences that you truly know Jesus Christ as Savior. How can we claim to know the greatness of this grace and mercy and then turn and live in wickedness? Those, those two things just don't compute. God's grace overflows out of us. Not perfectly, doesn't mean we never sin. But it does mean that we seek in every way to live, as Paul says in Colossians, in a manner worthy of the good news of Jesus Christ. Knowledge of who Jesus is fuels our obedience. That The grace of God fuels our obedience, not some desire to, to earn standing before God, not some desire to, to impress other people, not some desire to assuage our guilty conscience. We obey God's commands because we love Him and we know that He loves us. We know that He has been infinitely graceful to us. Jesus died for us so that we might be His and so that we might zealously and eagerly bless those around us by our good works, by our obedience to Him. Our good works... Do not save us. They earn us nothing in salvation. But they are evidence that we have understood and are, are understanding more and more the grace of God. They are evidence that we are being trained by the grace of God. This is what the grace of God does to a person. False teachers in Crete were claiming that a person can be saved without being transformed. But they were wrong. Paul says to Titus, rebuke them sharply. Why? 
Because the people that Christ saves are the people that Christ sanctifies. These aren't two separate groups of people. The, the, the people that Christ redeems are the people that Christ renews. Or the people that Christ purchased are the people that Christ is purifying. There, there's no different categories. There are mature and immature believers. There are people that are on different uh, are on the continuum of where they're at in their Christian life. Absolutely. But, but there's no Christian who's not being trained by grace. That's just what grace does. Obedience is not optional. Growth is not optional. Training in righteousness is not optional. That just is what the Christian life is. By the grace and mercy of God, He makes us into the people that He desires us to be. He fulfills in us the commands that He gives to us through the power of His Holy Spirit. Think, think of that as we'll sing the last song in a minute here. And, and the reason we chose this is because the, just the title is, is Yet Not I But Christ Through Me. So, so even hearing this, we're so tempted to think, okay, I've got to be good enough. That, that's not the point. Once you realize that you're not good enough and that's what salvation's all about and your faith is in Christ, Christ works through you. And so this, this Christmas season, as, as we wait, as, as you wait for the return of Christ, re- reflect on the grace of God and the coming of Jesus Christ. Let it train you to live in a way pleasing to Him, self-controlled, upright, godly. Renounce the ungodliness and worldly passion that you are tempted by. And together, let us wait with eager expectation for the return of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, our blessed hope. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a blessing it is to hear from your word this morning. Lord, we are infinitely grateful that you train us by your grace. Father, I pray for everyone in this room this morning and online that knows you. Father, lead us in the way everlasting. Expose the areas in our lives that are not pleasing to you. Lord, and then, by your grace, train us. Purify us. Teach us to live in a way pleasing to you. Lord, we can't even imagine the privilege that it is that we can bring these things to you because we know that you are gracious to us. Father, we don't even have words to express our gratefulness that that you sent your son to purchase us so that we might be your people. Father, I pray if there is anyone here this morning who who does not know this great privilege, who does not know this this grace, Lord, show it to them. Take, Take these words and drive them deep into their heart.
Give them ears to hear. Give them eyes to see the glorious beauty of Jesus Christ and his salvation. Bring them to faith in your son Jesus Christ this season. Lord, we thank you for all that you have given us, for every blessing, for every gift. But ultimately, we thank you, Lord, for the gift that is your son, Jesus Christ, and his work on our behalf. We pray this in his name. Amen.